What's up, everybody? You're listening to This Week I Learned, presented by Ross Mortgage on the Money Matters Radio Network. My name is Greg Arnold, and this is a brand new radio program here that aims to teach our listeners a little bit more about relevant finance news-related topics. So we're going to go through each week. We're going to pick a topic. We're going to have a guest on to talk about the topic, and we're just going to try to learn a little bit more. I tried to start off with some topics that are really relevant to what's in the news today. So we've got real estate today. We're going to do a little bit about supply chain management over the next week, a little bit of higher education talk, and a little bit of political talk in terms of how it affects Hollywood and finance. So not really black and white, but all that stuff. We had a great episode for you here today. We're going to be joined by Denise Kemet of Lamakia Realty as our expert guest. And I'm going to try to teach you a little bit about today's topic. So let's get right into it here on This Week I Learn, presented by Ross Mortgage. This week's topic is going to be buyer's markets and seller's markets as they pertain to real estate. It's something that you know, you're know you seeing a lot about right now. So you have all of this talk about just how hot the market is, how crazy it is to be a buyer, how great it is to be a seller. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about what really is a buyer's market, what is a seller's market, and, and how can I help myself and help my listeners be best prepared to tackle everything that comes with these markets, the challenges, the the good, the bad, the ugly. So we're going to start right off with what is a buyer's market. So I I mean, I've everyone's heard the term. I feel like I had heard the term. So I, I but I wanted to really get a good grasp on what it actually is. So I went over to Investopedia and they define it as a buyer's market refers to a situation in which changes to the underlying economic conditions that shape supply and demand mean that purchasers have an advantage over sellers in price negotiations. So that would be a buyer's market. So in this situation, basically, you're going to have an advantage so the, the purchaser or the buyer is at, has the upper hand. Pretty simple. What you need to understand about the buyer's market, and this is all, again, from Investopedia here, is that usually there's, it's going to happen for a couple of reasons. So usually there's a surplus of goods. So... There's more, whatever that may be. So when we're talking about real estate, there's just more listings than there would be uh, people interested in buying. So if you have in a town, for example, or in a region, if you have 100 houses for sale and there's only 90 qualified buyers, you're obviously in a better spot if you are the buyer. That transitions over into what we have right now, which is a seller's market. So again, sticking with Vestopedia here, they're going to define a seller's market as... A market condition characterized by a shortage of goods available for sale resulting in price power for the seller. A seller's market is commonly applied to the property market when low supply meets high demand. So as you can see right from the definition, exactly what we're dealing with today, really across the country, but definitely here in Massachusetts and the New England region. So basically, there's just not enough inventory or goods, whatever it may be. We're talking houses or I guess, you know, really just even places to live. Uh, there's not enough out there compared to the number of people who want them. So the supply is lower than the demand. And what that what happens during this market is that it's a frenzy. It's a free-for-all. People are doing anything to gain a competitive advantage and make sure that their offer stands out. I was, It's funny. I was just talking to a car dealership owner or whatever, the general manager of, of a car dealership who's a friend of mine. And we were talking about, hey, like this market right now is crazy. He knows that I'm in the market for a house. He just bought a house uh, in this region. And and we were talking about uh, just how crazy it is right now. 
And one thing that came up, he was like, yeah, it's even transferred over to cars, not just because of the, the chip shortage, but just pure what how hot everything is. So he's selling those brand new uh, Corvettes, the 2021s, beautiful machines. But he was saying that, you know, list on one of those could be anywhere from 80 to 100, and he's got people paying 130. So it's not just the housing market. Obviously, we're going to focus on the housing market today, but but it's pretty crazy out there, top to bottom. And that has really not always been the case. One thing that, when I was really looking into this, one thing I wanted to understand, well, well, how does this work? You know, the housing market's been around forever, but but realistically, you know, the last 50-ish years, what, what does the housing market look like? So I wanted to do some research, and I found a great article on Simple Dollar, which is honestly a pretty informative site that sort of summarized the last 50 years of the housing market, sort of what at, on a macro scale. So this is this is not going to be specific to the New England region. It's going to be a national thing, but I think we can learn a lot from it because I thought I learned a lot of it. So it starts, uh, breaks it into different time periods, which was nice. I didn't, year by year, I would have been here all day, but it starts in the early 70s, so 70 to 75. So the average sales price, and, and for somebody who's 27 or, or younger, or really even in their mid-30s or younger, some of these prices are just going to be absolutely wild. So the average inflation-adjusted home sales price was 177000 and there were 1.2, anywhere between, we'll just going to summarize it, one and a quarter to two and a half million units that were sold. So housing that were basically acquired. So whether that be new homes built, things turned into homes, all of that stuff. So there is about one and a quarter to two and a half million, and 64% of Americans owned a house. So that we're going to use that sort of as the baseline. So that's really important. So then you move forward here, and basically what, what's happening in this time period? For somebody like myself, the 70s are pretty much a blur. So President Richard Nixon announces a temporary end of approvals to subsidize housing in 1973, and that man moratorium lasts for about a year and a half. That same year, Congress passes the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. That act still in effect today, that's going to help basically not anybody, but it's going to help a lot of people get into home ownership. That, that barrier to entry used to be so high, and here in 1973 and 1974, Congress and the government is really working to make sure that that barrier of entry is much lower. This law, basically, what does it do? Just to summarize here, I, I pulled this up here from just from Wikipedia. So uh, it prevents creditors from discriminating against discriminating against potential borrowers based on protected qualities such as race, religion, sex, age, or marital status. Fast forward to 1975, the Emergency Homeowners Relief Act is enacted. So you can see that it's really in the government, again, we're starting here in the 70s, so I'm sure they were doing stuff beforehand, but the government is really centered on how can we make it easier for people to buy a home. So in 1975, they're going to pass this Emergency Homeowners Relief Act which is going to allow HUD, still in effect today, they do a lot of the FHA stuff, to make mortgage release payments for homeowners experiencing financial distress. It was aimed at fending off widespread mortgages defaults. So think of this as a very, very early bailout package from the government. Could you make the argument that we needed this in 2008? We'll stay tuned and I'll tell you. But we move forward, so 1976, 1977, a lot more acts here. So in 77, they're going to do the Community Reinvestment Act, which requires the Federal Reserve and financial 
regulators to encourage banks and lenders to meet the needs of the community. So basically, it wants... The government knew that we have to invest in these neighborhoods and we have to... We can't just be pumping everything into cities or high-income areas. So that's 1977. In 1978, so just in those seven years, so the average 1978 inflated adjusted home sales price goes to 245000 So that's a 7.2% jump just from the previous year, but obviously a massive jump, almost 30% from 1970. We've got the home ownership rate, though, just hovering right around 65%. But what's important about 1978? The government is still super, super involved here. They're going to ban the use of lead paint. Federal law today still requires people, if your house was built before 1978, to provide buyers with information about the presence of lead paint on the property. So that's 1978. So as you can see, just in seven years, really the prices are jumping, and that doesn't really stop. But... We move forward here, uh, 1979, not a ton going on, and then we get into the early 1980s. So mortgage rates hit an all-time high in 1981. The average fixed mortgage rate, sit down or pull over if you're driving, 18.63% was the average mortgage rate in the year of 1981, according to Freddie Mac's primary mortgage survey. That is about a six times higher rate than we have right now and a nine times higher rate than we had in the fall of 2020. So as you can see, just a massive difference between where we are now and where we were back then. But what else do we see in 1980s? And this is probably the most important thing. And for somebody who's in the younger demographic or somebody, you know, out of college, something like that, the most interesting thing is it really begins the shift from home ownership to renting among people between 20 to 34, but also that older age bracket, like up in the late 50s and the 60s. So people who are entering, should have been entering the home ownership space, are saying, eh, we'll hold off and we're renting. People who usually were downsizing or maybe just staying in their homes are saying, eh, I should sell and then going into renting. So that's for the first time, it's the early 1980s that that really shifts. And that lasts for a while. So in 1982, the sale of existing homes drops to the lowest point in the 20-year period from 1976 to 1996. So things are not doing so so well for the housing market. How does this relate to buyers and sellers markets? This becomes basically the best. It it goes both ways. We're not going to apply mortgage rates to this topic of discussion here because it's really a twofold issue. So Technically speaking, the 80s become the best buyer's market in a 20-year period, arguably the best buyer's market of all time. Now, that's not technically true because mortgage rates are so high, but that's not really what buyer's and seller's markets are all about. So the buyer's and seller's market in the 1980s is about as far left as borrowers can get, as buyers can get. So it's about as good of a buyer's market as humanly possible. However, mortgage rates are just so high that people aren't doing it. However, you move forward and things are slowly starting to shift back in a favorable direction for everyone. So not just buyer-sellers, but those mortgage rates uh, become maybe a little bit lower or people have more money. So in 1984, 60.4% of Americans found that buying a home in the area in which they lived was affordable. So obviously not a great number, but with 18% mortgage rates in the early 80s, Uh, Just a few years later, obviously, it gets a little better. We move forward 
into 1987, you get another, again, government's still involved, but it's dying down. It's been about, say, seven to eight years since they've made any big changes. But we get the Housing and Community Development Act passed in 1987, which creates the Nehemi, I butchered that, Housing Opportunity Grants Program, which is going to make federal grants available to nonprofits to loan money to low-income families to purchase home through an approved program. Basically, what does that mean? Because that's a mouthful. Basically, Congress passes an act which allows nonprofits to take money that they would be loaning in other ways. So basically, a non government passes a program. Federal grants become available to nonprofits, and the law. The nonprofits can use federal grant money to loan to low-income families to purchase a home. So basically, it takes out the – it adds a middleman, but it also takes out the banking process, right? So it was historically very challenging for low-income borrowers to buy a home. We just talked about the mortgage rate being in the 17 to 18% range. If you're a low-income borrower at this time, there's just – it's not going to be easy, so they passed this program with the aim, with the goal of helping people do this. And that is a really good program. And it works because people, it starts becoming more affordable for people to buy a house. So in 1988, just a years later, Harvard Joint Study for How Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, another mouthful. Releases its State of the Nation's Housing Report, which provides a measuring stick for changes in the home and rental market, and that that basically is what what happens in that report. You can dive into, but the gist of what happens here is that it's now not only in the government's interest but research interest. Everybody is taking interest and realizing that okay, the the real estate market, the home ownership market is going to be the backbone of this country. And and obviously it's been the backbone of this country for a long long time, but they're they're using all of this newfound technology and data and really starting to make sure that it is better. And that basically moves forward into 1989. Why am I mentioning this? Because in 1989 we've got another cosmic jump here. So we're up to 305,000 for the average price. So, for those of you keeping score at home, 305,000 is the inflation adjusted average sales Price in 1989, go back to 1980 to 1985. The average sale during that period is just 237. So you got about a $60,000 jump in just 10 years, which is more than that, almost a $65,000 jump, which is pretty crazy. So what is that? What does that mean for buyers and sellers market, which is our overarching topic here? What that means is that we are we're getting back to a pretty equal market and that's where they want it to be. So sure things are, you know, a little bit expensive that things are rising, but so are wages. Wages are rising at basically an equal rate. About 64% of Americans own in 1989. The housing starts. So what, you know, people flooding into the market type of deal is pretty, pretty standard. You're listening to This Week I Learned, presented by Ross Mortgage Company, hosted by Greg Arnold on the Money Matters Radio Network. We'll be right back. It's not that challenging to get in. There's not a lot of roadblocks in terms of supply and demand. So it's a pretty equal market. And it's going to stay that way for a while. You don't see a lot of changes from 1990 to 1995. So a five, six-year period there 
where things are getting pretty, you know, pretty even. What you do have during this time period is home prices declining. And that's a good thing if you are in a buyer's market, which again, it's sort of shifting towards a buyer's market, but there's just so many homes being built, so many people, there's just so much housing going on that it doesn't really transition into a true buyer's market. In 1991, you have home prices down 6% from year over year, but it's not that challenging because there's all of this support that's being lended from the government, not necessarily lended in a financial sense, but all of this support that's being brought into the market or the 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 sector, if you will, from the government. So they're doing all of this stuff to make sure that everybody has an equal shot at buying a house. And that obviously continues today. And it's it's really one of the, in my opinion, when I was learning about all this stuff, it's one of the great things that we saw from the government. And so we can sort of fast forward here. Not a lot of changes. Uh, there's some tax credits that get into in 97, which are still in fact today. Basically, capital gains, uh, the 250, 500,000 break. Basically, if you have lived there for a certain amount of time and you sell your house, you don't have to pay taxes. First 250 for single, 500 if you're married. That's in 1997. Not a lot changes here, obviously, through the mid 2000s. I'm going to fast forward to 2003. Sounds like a good place to be. We'll tackle that right after the break. When we come back, we'll do the last little bit of the mortgage history here between 2003 and present day. We'll also be joined by Denise Kemet of Lamakia Realty. Stick with us, and we'll be right back. You're listening to This Week I Learned, presented by Ross Mortgage Company, hosted by Greg Arnold on the Money Matters Radio Network. We'll be right back. <laughs> 